I remember really fondly the first time that I dunked a basketball. I'm not sure why you're laughing. I was in sixth grade. All my friends were over at the house, and we were playing, we were trying, we were working really hard, and it was me. I was the first one. Now, the goal was on six feet, but details, schmeetails, ladies and gentlemen, I was going to the league. I knew it deep down in my soul, I was a pro prospect. I was going to be the next one. And I'd heard my whole life, anything you want to do, you can do it. And I wanted to be a professional basketball player. And so that's what was going to happen. And then weird things started to happen. Realizations, we'll call them. A realization that the pros do not, in fact, play on six-foot goals. Realizations that there were people substantially better than me. And as I went along, I realized that everyone who told me you can be whatever you want to be was a dirty liar. Because no matter how badly I wanted it, I was not going to be a professional basketball player. And I had a weird tense of a life crisis in middle school and early high school realizing I can't do this. This is an absolutely unreachable goal. And maybe you've had moments like that. In fact, I think a lot of times as we grow up and move through life, we have multiple realizations that there are goals in our lives that may in fact be unreachable, things that we can't accomplish, things that we can't do. And it's kind of maddening. It's frustrating on a really deep level because we know it's something that we might not ever be able to attain. Now take that kind of a feeling And apply it to our relationship with God. If we have a God who is completely beyond our reach and our grasp. The effects of sin on the world, as we've been looking through Genesis, these first chapters. The effects of sin on the world can be easily overlooked. We normalize things, we just assume that this is the way things are, and so we move past it. But the effect of sin on our relationship with God is something that's devastating, something that can't be overstated, and something that can't be overlooked. And so as we've been going through these first 12 chapters of Genesis over the last several months now, we've been looking at God revealing himself, introducing himself to us, showing us who he is. And today we're going to be introduced to the unreachable God and see what this means for us but also what this means in relationship to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look at Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. And this is the word of God. It says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they all have one language and this is only the beginning of what they'll do and nothing that they purpose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so they may not understand one another's speech. 
So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off the building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them all over the face of the earth. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father God, as we've looked through these opening chapters of your word, we've seen parts of your characteristics that are striking and overwhelming that lead us to just infinite awe and wonder. We've seen parts of your characteristics that can bring fear and uncertainty into our lives. But God, this is perhaps the most troubling story that we see. A recognition that because of the sinfulness of humanity, we can't reach you where you are. But not to spoil the ending, God, but we just thank you so much that even though we couldn't reach to where you were, you reached down to where we are to bridge that gap, to bring a renewed relationship through your one and only Son, Jesus Christ. And so today, as we reflect on the effects of sin and the way that humanity can relate to their creator, God, we also come with hearts filled with the knowledge of the gospel that you made it possible for us to not only have a relationship with you, but for us to be your sons and daughters, to be your children and have an intimate relationship with an unreachable God. And so we do ask that you speak through your word, and we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Last week, we looked at the final part of the flood narrative in Genesis chapters 8 and 9. And in between that, we have another chapter filled with genealogies. And in chapter 10, the whole thing is, for the first part, just one large genealogy. And if you weren't here a few weeks ago, we talked about the merit and the importance of these genealogies, that they're more than just a phone book. It's more than just a list of names. These people represent generations. And this is a picture of God working in and through the lives of people. But what's amazing about the generations of Genesis chapter 10 is these are generations and generations of people living under grace. Remember, before the flood narrative, the sin in the story had gotten so bad that the earth looked at all that he created and he said, I'm going to wipe it clean. Nothing is going to remain. I'm going to wipe away every breath from the earth because everything is wicked and sinful, and I'm going to get rid of it all. But he didn't. And so all the names listed here are people who were living under the grace of a God who was grieved to the heart by the sin of the world, but loved the world anyway, and still chose to continue his plan through the lives of the people. And in verse 32 of chapter 10, we get a summary of all these events. And it said, these are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. And here we see people living out their calling. Remember, we saw God not only make a new covenant with Noah, but God reaffirmed the covenant that he had with humanity from the very beginning of the book of Genesis, where it's your purpose, it's your role, it's your responsibility to be fruitful and multiply, 
to take the image of God and spread it all over the world, spread it all over the earth, bring glory to God and build relationships, build communities and exist and live out your purpose. And that's exactly what we see them doing here. These are people doing what God had called them to do. And at the beginning of chapter 11 in the story, we see this phrase. It says, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And look at the the totality and the completeness of the way that this is all worded. The whole earth had one language and the same words. We see, in essence, a perfect unity here of the community that exists in this story. And there's an intense commonality between these people as they begin settling and raising up lands and building lives together. And I love verse 3. Because it says, they said to one another, come, let's make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And so now we see this picture of people working together. People coming together for one common purpose, one common cause, bringing their gifts and skills to build something. And not only were they working together, but they were working excellently. I love that simple phrase there where it says, burn them thoroughly. Make sure that they're cooked all the way through. Make sure that these are the best bricks that we could possibly make. Let's do something excellent together. They were building a life together. They were building a community together. And this is a quick picture of how especially Christian communities should work. And now we know that one of the things that we've seen about God is that he is creative and diverse And so the fact that we have a diversity of languages and a diversity of words that all represent one thing and a diversity of cultures and backgrounds, all of that is an incredibly beautiful thing. And in fact, because of the work of Jesus, the church is the most unique organization or structure in the world because it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter your cultural background or your tribal background. It doesn't matter the language that you speak. The gospel is the gospel for all people who trust in it, and it brings us together. And we're told that there's no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, that all are one in Christ. And so when we read this passage through the lens of the gospel, some of those same adjectives can be used to describe us, but in a deeper and more spiritual way. Because for the church, it's not the whole earth in one language and the same words. It's the whole church with one faith because we have the same Savior. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. It's Jesus Christ that unites us and brings us together. I love the one another and us language. We're coming to the end of the study we've been in our small group on Thursday nights as we've been looking at Francis Chan's letters to the church. And the last section of the study guide is just a list of over 50 one another passages in the New Testament where we're told how we should conduct ourselves in relationship and in community with each other. And we've just been going through those things, breaking down what they mean and how we can apply those, not simply in our church, but in our everyday lives. And that same kind of language is here in verse 3. It says, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. Let us all come together and do this thing. And it's a very communal structure, even in the language that they use. But church is often spoken of in very personal language. This is my church. I'm going to church. I love this song. I enjoyed this sermon. Me, 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 I, I, I. We speak about church life in very personal ways. 
But church is not designed to be a personal thing, but a corporate and communal thing. We're supposed to come together each and every Sunday, everyone bringing our gifts into the service and saying, let's do something amazing today. Let's worship God deeply and passionately and excellently. Let's serve one another and love one another in a way that no one else can. Let's equip one another and build one another up so that we can leave this place going out, loving and serving others the way that we have been loved and served. We need to start seeing ourselves, not just here at Redeeming Grace, but in the church all over the world and throughout the ages to see ourselves as one to recognize ourselves as us, to be the kind of people who include others in what we're doing, to sharpen one another as iron sharpens iron, to encourage one another and lift one another up, to even rebuke and, and, and come into times of correction with one another, to be for the good of others, to work for our neighbors outside the church, but also inside the church as well, to lift up one another's burdens and to be there to love and to care for one another in a way that only followers of Christ can. But not only were they working communally, but they were also working excellently and thoroughly. And we're told in Scripture that each one of us, as we put our faith in Christ, we are gifted and equipped, that God gives us spiritual gifts specifically for us so that we can use them for the corporate body of Christ and for the good of the people outside of our churches we love and care and share the gospel. And so we need to have that same mindset, that as followers of Christ, we need to make sure that we burn our bricks thoroughly. That we're sharpening the gifts that God has given us. That we're using them constantly. And especially as we come together on Sundays or when we are called into times of ministry and seasons of ministry. That we go into that holding nothing back but doing everything that we can excellently for the glory of God and for the good of those around us. We have to learn to give the best that we can together for the good of others and for the glory of God. And we get that little image of what that could look like in this first chapter. But then things kind of go sideways. In fact, they go squirrely really quickly. Because you have these people building community and everything's going well. They're burning their bricks thoroughly. They're making sure that everything is happening the right way. They're building up this city. They're building their lives. They're building community. And then somebody says, you know what we should do? We should build a city. And in that city, we should build a tower. But not just any tower, but a tower that reaches up into the heavens. The biggest tower that we could ever possibly imagine building. Because if we do, then everyone from anywhere that ever comes and visits our city, they're going to recognize this tower and they're going to say, Oh, look what you did. You are the most amazing people. The language they said there is, let us make a name for ourselves. And I love what follows that because it's such an easy mindset to fall into. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. There's the fear that if they don't do something to capture wonder and imagination, that if they don't do something radical or extravagant, that they're going to be forgotten. And this is something common inside of all of us. Everyone wants to be remembered. No one wants to be ordinary. And so the same thing is happening in the story where they thought we can't just be normal people. We can't just live in the lane that we've been given. We have to do something incredible so that people will know who we are long after we're gone. 
And so their objective is to build a city to the heavens, make a name for themselves, and in essence, break out of their purpose in creation. Remember, as early as Genesis chapter 1, when God creates humanity, he creates us in his own image. We were designed and made to be image bearers of God. Our entire existence, while we have so many purposes and so many things, our ultimate purpose is that we give glory to our creator, that we reflect the goodness and the grace and the mercy of the God who brought us into being. And so the purpose of humanity is not to lift up our own names, but to lift up the name of God. And what's happening in the story is a complete reversal of who they were designed to be. And what we see is that hard work turns to hubris. Working excellently and thoroughly for the glory of God and for the good of others wasn't enough anymore. And all of a sudden, all that hard work became something where they realized, you know what, we're really good at this, and so we don't need God and we don't need others. We just need to glorify ourselves. And what we see in Genesis 11 is the story of the building of a false religion. You see, Genesis 1 and 2 is the story of God building for himself a temple, creating for himself a city where he would be honored and glorified, a place where his people could worship him and where he would have fellowship with them and pour out his love on them. But now they're building a new kind of city. And I love how these early chapters of Genesis lay out the problems of humanity. In Genesis chapter 2, we see the story of Adam and Eve. And we see Eve being tempted not with just the nature of the fruit in the garden, but we see her being tempted with the possibility to be something more. The possibility to be like God. And so Eve's story is the story of sin. An individual stepping out of God's design for who she is. But the story here with Babel, is the story of false religion. It's an entire group of people stepping out of God's design for community. And when it comes to religion that is false, there's an an easy starter kit that goes along with that. You can pick two pathways to follow. One, you can look towards God and see a place for yourself. Man, God gets all the glory. God gets all the honor. God gets all the praise. I want that for myself as well. And so partly with false religion, like what we see here, they wanted to make a name for themselves and take the place of God. But then there's also the side of false religion that teaches that you can look to God and see a way to climb there yourself. That, okay, here's this God up here, and I want to be close to him, and I want to be near him, and so I need to do all of these things. I'm going to put all of these works in place. I'm going to work really excellently so I can grab that God's attention, so that I can climb up above everyone else, and so that I can move up this ladder and get close to deity. In fact, we see that in religions and ideologies all over the world. It's either here's a way that you can work your way to a relationship with God, or here's a way that you can become a God yourself. But Christianity is shockingly different because we know that neither of these things are possible. Because we're told in Scripture that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that there is no one righteous, no, not one, that there is nothing that we can do to earn the favor of God or reach ourselves up to God, and there's certainly nothing that we can do to become a God ourselves. And this story illustrates that well. 
And I love the way that the Torah, these first five books of the Old Testament, reveal God to us. Because so often we see God as this distant spirit off in the sky, but in the Torah we get a picture of God up close and personal. God speaking directly to his creation. God walking through the garden in Genesis chapter 2. We see God come to Moses in the book of Exodus in the burning bush. We're going to see in chapter 12 as God comes to Abraham face to face and speaks to him directly. And we see another picture of that as well. God making himself very small to interact with humanity. And in verse 5, it says, The Lord came down to the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And again, God looks at what's happening, just like he did when he saw the sin of the world of Noah. And he sees a problem in humanity. Something that leads away from his purposes and towards their own demise. And so God takes their aspirations and he makes them impossible. But unlike with the Noah story, this isn't destruction, but it's confusion. And God comes in, he says, let us go down and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. And so God dispersed them all over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. And so they were met with incredible confusion and chaos. And this is what happens when people try to do things on their own terms. When people try to be things that we're not. When God is not the ultimate standard. When God's glory is not the ultimate objective, only chaos will ultimately ensue. And the reality is no one can build a tower to heaven. God isn't afraid that one day someone is going to build a structure that reaches all the way up to heaven because that's not the way that heaven works. That's not the way that God works. And so God isn't off in the sky somewhere just hoping that we don't build our way up to there. But this problem is deeply spiritual. What the Bible story reveals to us is something in our hearts and a foundational truth about God. That we are sinful and prideful, and because of that, God is unreachable. Because he is holy, holy, holy. Because he is perfect in all of his ways. And so in this story, we see a God who once walked with his people through the garden, now fights them and keeps them from getting close. And because of sin... No tower, no religious institution, no charitable deed, no good works. We can go on and on and on. None of these things could ever allow us to build our way into a relationship with God. And that feels like a very hopeless situation. But as we've seen through these early chapters of Genesis, we believe in a God of hope. And so Babel sets in our hearts the need for the gospel. We see God saying here, there is no possible way, no matter how excellently you work, even if you all work together, there is no way by your own might or your own strength that you can work yourself up to where I am. And that's a big problem. And it's one that you can't solve, but it's one that I can. Because in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. 
even though we couldn't claw our way up to where God was. He loved us so much that he saw our brokenness, he saw our weakness, he saw our sinfulness, and loved us anyway. In fact, loved us so much that he was willing to give everything for us. Because just like we see in this passage, God going down to look at this city, when we see Christ come into the world, God in flesh, we see God coming to where we are. God making himself very small for us. God living and moving and revealing himself to us. But not only that, knowing that we're sinful, saying, you can't do this, but I can. And this is how I'm going to do it. And so he stretches himself out on a cross and he breathes his last and he dies for us. Giving absolutely everything so that we can have a relationship with him. And we know the symbolism from that night when Jesus died, when in the temple, the veil that separated the most holy place where only one person one time a year could go because that's how holy God is. That temple was torn from the top to bottom and the pathway to God was open so that anyone who puts their faith in Christ is not only a follower of God, not only a servant of God, but we are called children of God. And then we're given a spirit of adoption so that we can cry out, Abba, Father, that we can go boldly into the presence of God, that we can come confidently into his midst, not being afraid of what was going to happen, not being concerned that God is going to cast us out, but the unreachable God reaches down into time and space and he pulls us up to himself. And that's the good news of the gospel, that while God was unreachable to us, We weren't unreachable to him. And so if you're here and you've never put your faith in Christ before, that's the message that we all have access to. That God loved you so much that no matter what you've done, no matter what you feel like you've done that makes you unlovable or unreachable by God, there is no depth to which God can't reach because he dips his hands in our dirt and he pulls us out. And all we have to do is trust in him and the good news that he was willing to die for us and raise again. And so if you're here and you've never put your faith in Christ, please don't leave without talking with me about what it means to follow after Jesus in salvation, to be reached by the unreachable God, and to start living a life that follows after him. If you're here and you are a follower of Christ, Genesis chapter 11 beckons us with a call to be in awe and wonder because we know that the unreachable God reached down to where we were and pulled us up, as the psalmist says, out of the mire, out of the dirt, out of the ash, out of all the stuff, all the junk that we built on top of our lives, all the sin that we allowed to come in and separate us from God. He pulls those things back, not based on our work, but on his alone. And he calls us out of that darkness into marvelous light and calls us his children. And if we are not daily amazed by that we've got problems and we need to come back to the gospel day after day after day and pray just as the psalmist did that God would restore us to the joy of our salvation that we would recognize the magnitude of what Jesus did for us and as we do feel the call to recapture this kind of community where we recognize that no matter who we are, no matter how different we may be, that we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We are one body because we take of one bread. We all 
as one church, the whole church, have one faith because we have the same Savior and start living with one another like that. The deciding factor on if we are a healthy church is not simply the way that our music sounds or how efficient our preaching is, or if we can get in and out in a certain amount of time, or if we build big buildings or have a big production, the way that we will be known as a healthy, Christ-honoring, God-glorifying church is that the gospel will be central to all that we do, and people will be loved in a way that they have never been loved before because we are willing to put everything down for the good of others. That's the kind of community that the unreachable God gives us as he reaches down and brings us together. And anything short of that, anything short of awe and wonder and Christ-consumed community is not enough. And so that needs to be our heart's desire each and every Sunday, but also each and every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday as we unite together under the banner of the gospel and then go out to share that good news with anyone that God puts in our lives.